Hi, my name is Ilya Neischuler. I'm the writer, director, producer of Hardcore Henry. And uh, you're listening to my commentary track. And here we have the logo of SDX Entertainment, the lovely distributor that uh, releases this film. There's Basilev's, that's uh, our producer Timur Bekmambetov's company. And proud to say it's a fantastic logo. It's my versus pictures. Wonderful logo. The three bullies. I've never had to cast kids before in anything, and I remember looking at a bunch of auditions, and I picked these three, and I'm very happy with how they did everything. But then it turns out that the kid on the right, uh, Cyrus Ireland Arnold, he played the son in Zoolander 2. He played Ben Stiller's uh, son after he did this film. So it was kind of exciting. And the kid on the left uh, was on the cover of a Fall Out Boy album. And I think he was in the music video. So I was kind of like, uh, all right, first choice. Uh, didn't work out uh, too bad. And of course, uh, Jack, who played the lead bully, who's never acted before in anything, I thought he was really great. You... Little. Ah, uh, Tim Roth. Excellent. That was a very complicated, hard day's shoot. We um, showed up and we shot him in four takes, and he was super fantastic each time. We just kind of moved the camera around, and I didn't really have to direct him much, except he had a conversation about what's the accent. And once I picked an accent, he just showed up and did a, did a fantastic run in it. And um, I felt kind of awkward because I didn't have to direct him, but a good kind of awkward. title sequence was something that was half written in the script and I told uh, everybody that you know let's do the title sequence after the film was done because if the film is great I want to go all out and do something fantastic and in my mind I was thinking of the title sequence to the film Fight Club and I remember hearing Fincher's story of how he was allowed to shoot uh, the title sequence only after the studio saw that the film worked out so I kind of thought that was a beautiful way to go and not to overkill it in case the film wouldn't work why would we spend all that money to figuring this out. It took us, I think, 30 hours to shoot. One long, complicated day. Some shots took three or four hours to set up uh, the knife in the next shot. But my, um, my pitch to the producers and to everybody else who was involved in this, I said, look, we either have to do a video uh, title sequence that you know enters the top 20, or hopefully the top 10 of title sequences of all time, or we just do Woody Allen-esque red on black letters and that's it. And there's no, uh, nothing fancy. Because I was kind of tired of all the typical CG, beautiful looking stuff that we have in all the blockbusters. But I just felt like this needed something special to set the tone. The same way that I always recall um, the beautiful title sequence to the film Watchmen, which to me is my favorite part of the movie. So I kind of wanted to you know, set the tone and go all out for it. Originally, it was supposed to be uh, shot and edited to a very pounding techno track. But as we were shooting and we were doing a knife shot, it was a four-hour setup, so I had quite a bit of time to mess about. And we were editing on the spot, and I remember going through my iPhone and clicking through all the possible songs and going, let's set the tone a little differently. What do we have? And I was lucky to have that Stranglers song on there, and it just fit beautifully, and we edited to it. And we were lucky that the Stranglers dug the movie and gave us, gave us the track.
here we have Haley Bennett. This was the very last thing we shot with her. I like the idea of shooting the first stuff last just because you get really good at it, you get a great connection with someone you work with and obviously the first impression of a character you see is always pretty much the most important one. And this was not that easy to shoot, I have to say, with, with the water. And uh, I think the way we shot this, if I'm mistaken, Andre Dementiev, who also plays Slick, Dimitri, he played Henry uh, in this first scene. And uh, the camera rig that we used for most of the film wouldn't fit here. So we had a, a GoPro fixed to a mouth guard. He would just bite down and shoot it. Do you remember how you got here? And this shot right here, when she first talks to him, that was probably the quickest we've ever shot a dialogue scene in, in this movie. I think it was the second take. She nailed it. And um, I was like, well, the second take is good enough. We have the first one for backup just in case. Um, I think we should move on. I was pleasantly surprised. I like to usually, you know, for the dialogue stuff, I do it, you know, 7, 10, 15. But this was just felt so perfect that I said, let's move on and spend some time on the technical things here so this um, the spider as we called it the, the medical spider that's practical uh, it was built by the same engineers who who helped uh, to build the prototypes of the, the stabilized camera rig they did a very good job it was kind of scary to be lying underneath that thing because it, it weighed I don't know I think about 400 500 kilos but it looks good so I guess um, that's the important thing welder None of the viewers ever know of the troubles unless they listen to the commentary track. And the only thing that matters is what you actually capture and how you make people feel. So, especially a film like this where danger was a big uh, component, I kind of felt that the more danger we get, we put the guys who are playing Henry in, the better it's going to feel. And that's why the entirety of the film was was shot by an actor wearing the, or an actor or someone wearing the camera rig. I was very adamant about that. There's to be no cheating, none of that, uh, let's throw a camera and add some green screen hands flapping about bullshit. Because that would have been the easy way and we do not look for easy ways. So this shot, which, um, there's lots of CG in it. This was one of the more complicated things to do because each element here was made by a different CGI vendor. We had about 12 or 13 altogether. And the hands were made by uh, this guy who was working by himself, AHA, and had maybe a small team. The monitor on the iPad was done uh, by, I think, a Russian company. My friend Kirill took care of the monitor. And then the little thing underneath was done by the fantastic hydraulics. There's a, So it's, it's very complicated, technically, to be able to send out to different vendors, different parts of the shot, and get it back together and, and compile it. I thought it would be a lot easier than it was, but I think our post-supervisor, Scott Farrar, uh, did a fantastic job of juggling the amount of shots that we did have. I think the total runs up to about 1,800, which is a huge number, especially for a film that was originally planned to have about 150 or 200. So, you know, they had their work cut out for them. <sighs> the 
the interesting thing about Henry's wedding ring is that in Russia, we wear our wedding ring on the right hand, and we were shooting, and I was like, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. It should be on the left for the Western audiences. So I think it was a half a day's reshoot we had to do because I did not do my homework, I'm embarrassed to say. Mr. Will Stewart, who's a great friend of mine, and we work in a script before Hardcore came along that uh, hopefully we get to do a little later. It was a Cold, uh, a cold War spy thriller. And so I uh, had him be a part of this, and there's me, my very complicated cameo. Your own voice. Thank you. Thank you very much. So the guy who did all the voices, the Darth Vader, Louis Armstrong, and Elvis is one guy. And I think he did a very good job. I did not think one guy could do it, but um, there's some very talented voice actors here in L.A. that um, we got to use. How about we use Henry's voice? Yeah, whatever you say, the boss. Boring. I always love the sound of the lights going off, the very classical, uh, very classical uh, shutdown when you don't close everything all at once, but just uh, one by one. This team right here, these mercenaries were, again, this is one of the last things we shot, so I asked to get a SWAT team, a Russian SWAT team, to make it feel as real and as scary as possible. So I wanted to set the tone. The trick with movies and music videos and a lot of entertainment is to make sure that the first time you see something, again, the first impression, if you get the first impression right and the first uh, SWAT guys look like they're you know, hard asses and they can, they can um, kick your ass, you're going to have a more forgivable audience in terms of all the future appearances of the mercenaries. So uh, I use that quite a bit. Did I interrupt the procedure? Can Henry not talk yet? Daniel Kozlovsky as Aiken. Daniel is a huge movie star in Russia, and he usually plays heartthrobs and the guys that get the girl and kill a bad guy and save the day. And when I pitched this to him, I said, look, well, this is going to be very, very different. It's a highly experimental film, and you are going to play a piece of shit of a human being that has supernatural abilities, and we're going to give you a blonde wig and we're going to give you icy cold eyes and um, you get to do something you've never done before. And to his credit, he was you know, excited and we did a two-hour rehearsal uh, makeup test and it just as soon as I saw him, I was like, okay, this is going to be great. This is... Because um, originally in the script, it was the villain was much older and we were thinking about going for an American actor. But then I realized that this is a film shot in Russia. So instead we have uh, Daniel Kozlovsky, who... I like the idea of having a younger, good-looking villain as opposed to the typically expected old general and worn. And I try to stay away from the typical uh, choices one would make. And um, it didn't happen all the time, but uh, I'm glad that with Aiken, it worked out for the better. Daniela had to act in his, uh, not in his native language, which is never easy. I would be rewriting the script constantly, and he would show up from St. Petersburg. He would fly into Moscow for the shoot. He's probably the busiest guy I know. He'd show up, and I'd be, and he's like, all right, I know my two pages. I'm like, great, here's two new pages. And he'd be like, what? I can't do this. I'm like, well, you better. And then 15 minutes later, he would have him down, and he would come and um, do a fantastic job. He's probably one of the most hardworking people I've ever met.
men like these we brought back from the dead to form his army. That shot as Henry jumps out of the of the blimp was a pain in the ass to do for the CG guys. The tracking, like four different vendors from all over the world couldn't crack it. And uh, ultimately it was a Russian company that did the tracking and uh, two US vendors who figured out the design of the, the blimp. It's way better than what we had here originally. It's yours, get in. Estelle! Get in, get in! sequence. One of the original pitches for the film before I came to the idea of, of having a cyborg who's trying to save his wife was an alien who crash lands on Earth and two different pods with his mother. And his mother is in the same city but crashed somewhere far. He's got a radar and he knows where she is and he's got to go save her. And I realized it'd be too complicated to do an alien. It wouldn't be as relatable. So I avoided that, but I always wanted to have the pod sequence, the crash landing, the introduction to the city. And uh, that's the only thing that stayed from that pitch was this K-Pod, which dictated having a blimp, and I'm very happy with how that turned out. And this was shot in October. So this was uh, Haley Bennett's first shooting day. It was incredibly cold. As you can tell, sometimes there's cold breaths going from um, Henry's mouth. And the interesting story here was that we were supposed to have all three lanes of this highway closed for this shoot. And as it tends to happen in Russia, we had a permit, official permit, all paid for, all legal. And then this prick of a cop shows up and he says, we can't close the third lane. And I'm like, well, we have the papers. And producer's like, we have the papers. And he's like, I don't care. And it was very cold and the actress is there, uh, you know, wearing a, a small dress. It's, and it was very uncomfortable. And this prick of a cop is, really fucking up our day and I got so incredibly pissed it's the only time I've ever lost my shit on this movie I took a traffic cone it was it was lying on the ground and I just kicked it as hard as I can and it flew into the cop car's cherry light on the top breaking it and the cop just stands there and I was thinking well if you arrest me well fuck him he can arrest me he's the prick we're right we should be here we're making a movie we're doing something good and he's just you know being a corrupt asshole and I think the kick of the cone to the cherry light really worked because the guy just told us to fuck off, got in his car and drove away. He said he'll be back and he didn't come back and we got to shoot the scene the way I was supposed to. So, yeah, fuck that guy. The upside of doing something like that is that the crew loves being led by someone who, you know, will do anything necessary within reason to get the stuff we need for the for the movie. So the cop left, I remember everyone was like, yeah, good job, man, good job. So I was like, yeah, I showed him. In reality, of course, I'm very lucky <laughs> to not have been arrested and taken to a jail for a couple of days. So this was shot by Sergei Valeyev, my friend who we did the Bad Motherfucker and the Stampede music videos with. Of course, he had to do the part where he had to crawl through the wet ground and in his dirty suit 
There's a lot of trouble with the reflections in the car to hide the camera rig, and I think there's about 100 shots in the movie that we had to work on the shadows to clean it up and to make sure that the audience are not distracted by the technical appearance of Henry's head, which was, in reality, it was a huge camera rig. First kill, the windshield wiper. Very proud of that. I remember when I was writing this and I was sending the pages to the production office because I had to write the script while being in pre-production, which is not how you do things. It was the wrong way of doing a movie, but in our case, we had to do that because we're going to lose the weather and this film couldn't have been made in winter where I didn't want to make it in winter. So it was a very hectic situation, but what i do is I'd send a production pages. I remember uh, one of the guys writing back to me saying, why didn't you make the first kill with a crowbar, man? And people would be like, hey, it's Half-Life reference. I'll make it. Well, that's exactly the point. We don't want to do any more reference than we have to. People who are going to be watching this film, they're going to be pretty aware this particular filmmaker has played a few FPS in his life. So there's no heads-up display, there's no super obvious homages. Well, I think there's actually a couple, but they were not conscious. They were rather like, oh, here's a cool scene. Oh, wait a second, I've seen that before. And hey, here's Jimmy, as Bon Jimmy, as we used to call this guy. I love how that we have the light in this shot, the sun. You're a fucking rabbit in the headlights, aren't you? The original scene intended for him to, after he crashes the car, he was supposed to back up and crash into those two guys sending them flying. But, and we had the rehearsals and the stung drivers knew what they were doing, except for some reason it didn't work on the day. We couldn't get the car to spin fast enough to send the guys uh, flying. So I was, um, I was very panicky that we, the introduction again was super important. I wanted to make sure that Charlton's character gets a great kick-ass intro. And I went away to sit in the curb and have a cigarette. And I, I just kind of clicked. I said, well, let's crash into him. Let's have him climb up on the hood and shoot the other car. It might not be too bad. And I like how that turned out. In fact, I, I think you're going to hear a lot of me saying, well, I like how that turned out. Well, I really do. I, I'm really proud of this film. It was a lot of people working very, very hard and doing something that we all felt was very special. Now, it's funny, I'm recording the director's commentary before the film has come out, so I have no idea if it did well, if it tanked, if people actually saw it, if they enjoyed it. So I have reviews up on Rotten Tomatoes from the festivals, and they're great, but I wonder if I'm being like, oh, I love it, and everyone's like, well, it's a piece of shit. I certainly hope not. And, okay, well, the good news is that you're going to live a while. The bad news is that in this case, a while means 20, 30 minutes tops, Henry. The fun thing with this scene is that Charlto is driving. There's no road closures, we're just going at it. I'm sitting in the back, Sergey is shooting this scene as Henry, and we were doing seven, eight minute long takes. That The scene has been shortened for pacing reason, but there was a pretty funny joke in there about, because right now Jimmy just says, oh, open up, uh, take off your shirt, and Henry just does it. Originally there was a bit of a, a misunderstanding situation that was kind of funny, but as much as I wanted to keep all the laughter in, I really needed the pace to be as quick as possible. This cop right here is Andrei Biryoskin. He actually says his name. He's a prior technician on, on this movie. And this is um, this is Charlotte's most complicated. When people ask him what's the most complicated sequence he had to shoot, it was this, because this was a lot of it was one take. I was playing Henry, and so he had to crash into the car, elbow the guy off, and then the swoop had to go off. It was a lot of elements that had to work out right. And the trick is you got to have a certain number. 
like maybe three, four, five things you have to get right and a shot for it to work. So I think that Henry's got to look in the right direction. Those squibs got to go off and the actor's got to say his lines. But when you start adding, you know, five more and ten more, there were sequences here, and I like to remember them when they pop up, where there was like 12 things that had to happen correctly. And that's when it gets very tricky and very expensive because those things take a while to reset and um, you're not likely to get it off uh, correctly in the, in the first take. Ah, uh, yes, the piss-colored Russian underpass. I love this lady coming up right here. She was the salesperson in that shop, and we just asked if she can do that for us and paid a little bit, and she did. There was a lot of improvisation like that during the making of this film. And this is Ravshana Kurkova, who is a big Russian star, wonderful actress. I think she brought so much to the role, just the way she presses the phone here and moves her hand away. I thought that was pretty damn funny. And the wind chimes. Big fan of the wind chimes. That door was so heavy. We always wanted the door to fly out or go as hard as it can against Andre, the cop. But it was a metallic door that as hard as we could kick it, it would never look good. And it pisses me off to this day. So an important lesson to be learned from this shot right here is that that cop is about three practical squibs on him and three CG. It's kind of the way to do CG is to have the practical element behind it. The blood that falls onto the camera lens, that is that is practical blood and the rest is very easy to fool the eye if something if they have something to hold on to that has weight and physicality. Another uh, thing I'd like to bring up is that we shot Henry killing the other cop. The guy was already down him and after we shot it, I realized that why would Henry kill somebody who is not a threat? That goes against his character and um, I probably came back and edited it so that it feels that he doesn't, which was very important. So the guy in the left right here, that's Ilya Kondratyev, my bass player from Biting Elbows, my band. And if you look carefully, that t-shirt jumps around a little bit because uh, we had to CG it out. I'm gonna have to hurt you, Henry. But it's for your own good, mate. Just give me your arms. So, I think Charlotte did not eat anything for three days before shooting the scene because he showed up on set. He had to pause while we were shooting some other stuff. And he shows up on set and he is way skinnier. His cheeks are kind of uh, dented in. I'm like, have you been eating? He's like, well, not too much. And I was like, excellent. Because even though you can hide behind the beard and, and the dirty clothes, the fact that he took this very strange experimental movie very, very, very seriously. He really pushed me to go better. And I'm incredibly appreciative and thankful that he didn't have to do this film, realistically. At that time, I think he just came off Maleficent. It was a $200 million movie where he got to kiss Angelina Jolie. So and then he gets an email from us saying... You know, it's a debut director shooting in Russia with a very inexperienced crew, small budget, highly experimental idea. Could be complete shit, but if we get it right, this will be phenomenal. And um, he was interested in doing it. He said, if you write me the part, I'll definitely consider. So I had a week where I was just figuring out, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I need to have something that he would not be able to say no to. I needed Cheryl Tocopi in this film. He was my first and last choice. And um, I was always a fan of Dr. Strangelove and a film called Kind Hearts and Coronets, where one actor played about nine parts. 
Uh, maybe even more. I think it was Alec Guinness. I think it's Alec Guinness, but if I mess it up, I'm going to be a little bit embarrassed. So I came up with the idea of the multiple characters. I pitched the multiple Jimmys to him, and I told him that I'd love to see how you would play them. And um, I kind of ensnared him into this part. We allowed to do that because my intentions were pure underneath. So we started checking the Jimmys and doing little things here and there, a little to test. He would send them from L.A., and I'd be sitting home writing the script, and we are going back and forth. And the idea of making sure that Charlotte was in the film and ensnaring him with the multiple Jimmys meant that he started doing tests. And the influence he had was that I realized you cannot do a serious film with 10 different characters. And I'm super thankful for the way it worked out because the fun tone of the film that we have originally comes from having 10 Jimmys. That informed everything else. And I think the tone is why the film really works. The fact that it's it's quite brutal violence, but at the same time you have these contrasts of laughter and music and comedy. These two guys, uh, I think that's our, uh, I don't think, I know that's our key rigger right there. I just saw how he was running around the set. I was like, I have to get him in the film, and that worked out well again. Here's my proud of that moment line for the fourth hundredth time. And this guy was our bus driver. <laughs> I was talking to him in the early part of the shoot, and I realized how interesting he looks and how interesting he his mannerisms he's a very serious guy swears a lot as one would expect but i think he did a great job and we got that again like two or three takes he was completely natural if i do another film in russia i will definitely get him back for more <laughs> so sergey Valeyev was shooting this and I made him do 17 takes. And uh, that's one of the rare occasions where I look back and say, we could have gotten away with about 12. Even though he's got a safety wire that's kind of helping him up, it's still rather physically demanding to be able to scale up six floors. And now you hear Henry's grunt, and that's one of the rare occasions where we cheated to accentuate the danger of the situation. He can't speak, really, but we use it there. So here's our punk apartment, as I like to call it. That's my friend Ivan Nesyanov, who was in all my music videos before. He was in the first film, the first music video that I did that I really loved. I was very proud of it. It was the Dope Fiend Massacre. He played the lead. And I kind of brought back all my friends who helped me out along the way. I said, you have to be a part of this. I think it's just the right thing to do. And obviously, all the posters in that room are things that I loved. I made a list of uh, entertainment and games and movies and books. And um, if you pause it, you'll see quite a few very obvious inspiration for this movie, including The Lady in the Lake, which I put there as ammunition for the situation where people are like, well, you're not the first PB. I'm like, I know, The Lady in the Lake is in the movie. There's a poster. We're fully aware. Yeah, it's a bit of a cheat code. On the left was one of our producers, and the right is Lyokha Zamorayev, my drummer from Biting Elbows. And this right here is Russia's biggest rock star, Sergei Shnurov from Leningrad. 
he was a really good support. People were like, oh, he's not going to be in the film for a second. You're not going to be able to put pliers on his nose. He's going to hate his stupid idea. I'm like, let me just talk to him. I know he's, I have a feeling that he was a cool guy. Same way as I felt about Tim Roth, same way as I was thinking that Charlotte was going to be that. I met this guy, I pitched him the shot, and he was like, oh, right on. Let's, uh, let's do it. I'm in. And it was just a lot of fun to hang out with him. And he's known, apart from his music, the way he does a lot of swearing uh, in his songs. And I just told him, I said, improvise, just go all out and say every word you want to say, and it'll be fun. And that's what he did. Always enjoyed the juxtaposition of having those uh, servers and that old school chandelier. Rita Blaiva, who was the production designer, has never done science fiction. She always did very arty, very slow moving, thoughtful films. And I was like, well, this is going to be a little different. It's going to be fast and uh, aggressive. And we need elements of science fiction. And she really rose to the occasion especially considering the budget limitations that she had, the time limitations that she had. And uh, her and her crew really, really, really went all out here. And here's Andre Dementiev, my good friend. Andre, apart from playing like Dimitri, he also plays a lot of Henry. Now, originally in the script, instead of having uh, Stell there on the screen, it, we showed a beginning of the Aiken breaking Jimmy's backbone uh, scene just to make the audience think that Jimmy is in cahoots with Aiken. And what happened was when the, we did the first cut, I realized we were really missing Estelle. We need more of her in the movie because for some reason, not for some reason, very obvious reasons, it felt that Henry's just, you know, now he's following Jimmy's directions and where's his wife that he was supposed to be so worried about. So that was one of the small um, fixes that we managed to include. To get that shot of the door, the pimples on the door from the shotgun, that was an explosion. We were standing around with a with a hammer, going like, "Okay, on three, we're gonna push, we're gonna we're gonna hit the hammer, and then all these things will appear on the door, make it feel like a shotgun blast." And I remember the prior technician just looking at us, going, "All right, losers, get out of the way." He just goes there, plants a little bit of an explosive, says, "Let's do it." First take, boom, done. And he walks away very smug, and rightfully so. He helped it look good. You're half machine, half pussy. I. Very proud of the half machine, half pussy line. It's um, it's incredibly obvious, but it just it always gets a laugh, and it just makes sense, especially because we had the, the Tim Roth beginning when he calls us a little pussy. So the continuation of the pussy, it's one of the themes of the film that we'll talk about closer to the end. I think, unless I forget, which I which I which I could, but I think the guys in the other room who are recording this, they'll be like, "Hey, talk about the pussy." I'd be like, "All right, talk about the pussy. Let's do that." This chase scene. This is the shakiest part of the film, and we did a lot of tests to make sure that we kind of hold back a little bit to make sure that we're not killing the audience. I get motion sick very easy, and I wanted to make sure I can watch my own film. So the magnetically stabilized head, head rigs helped, but there's two shots here that are the shakiest shots in the movie, in my opinion, and they're borderline queasy for me. When he kicks the fence here, I... I've never seen somebody kick a fence when your enemy's on the other side getting down. It seems incredibly obvious, and I'm sure it has been made somewhere, but I couldn't remember it. And I remember when the guys were shooting the scene, and the way we shot the scene, by the way, it's in the script, it was just a chase. And we were driving, looking for locations. We had all, like, all this camera stuff. It was a small guerrilla crew, maybe four or five guys. And Sergey and Andre, 
they're like, well, you know, we used to run like on that bridge as we were kids. And I'm like, you want to do that? They're like, uh, I think we can. So we stopped. They got out. They did a trial take. It was wet. It's raining. Andre's wearing platform shoes slash boots at this point. And uh, so obviously there's no other producers. I was a producer in this picture, which um, allowed me to get away with a little bit more. But the guy's like, let's do it. We're not going to tell anybody. Let's just go for it. And they just went for it. So there's no safety. It's not as high as it appears, but it, had they fallen, it would have been bad. So, you know, balls of steel on these guys. And I was sitting in a warm car, sipping a chai latte, and they come back all tired and worn out and be like, what do you think of this take? I'd be like, well, let's go again. So it, sometimes it's a little horrible to be a director because you got to push your guys a little further. But it's part of the job. And... Uh, the important thing is that you get the result. Uh, the girl who fell on the escalator, and that was a stunt woman. She turns around and she's like, oh, did we get it? With a big smile on her face. And I was incredibly relieved, but, um, and she's totally fine. There's not a scratch on her. She's a stunt woman who knew, who knows how to fall, but it looks horrendous and we had to keep that taken. But I was, in terms of the story, it was very important for Henry to be, to be a good guy. And that's why we lean in and she, we picked up a shot where she turns around and we, Henry does check on her. So the, the character, you really wanted him to, to be as nice as possible under the circumstances. About the man who sent you here. enjoyed the knock on the knocker joke and uh, we put that breast um, looking uh, knocker on that door it cost about 300 bucks and I really wanted to have a second breast there for obvious reasons and we couldn't afford it it was $300 I was like ah god okay we'll get away with just a knock on the knocker joke like that and I was thinking maybe we'll do a CG knocker but the CG knocker turned out to cost about five or six grand so we're like okay we're gonna have one breast and um, that's it I've been talking about all the danger. I want to make it very clear that we had over 90 stun days on this picture. And for a bunch of crazy Russians, we have beaten the Hollywood safety record by far. That's over 90 stun days, death-defying stunts, pretty loose uh, safety regulations in Russia. But we all had each other's backs. Our guys, all our stunt team, are incredibly great. And, um, you know, I told everybody in the beginning, I said, as much as I think film is forever and pain is temporary, it's got to be temporary. If someone's going to get any sort of serious injury, I would, I would never forgive myself. So we, I think we did a very good job of making sure that everyone is incredibly safe during this very, very dangerous production period. Fire up some of this shit! Fire up my fucking nerves, yeah! <laughs> there you are! 
stuff. Ow. Come on. Hey, bring me some of that strong Russian shit, ladies. Okay, now where's that? Where's that? Where's that? Did you get it? Did you get the fucking... We had an interesting uh, butting of heads with Charlotte on this one. So it was his girlfriend, uh, now wife's, uh, Tanit Phoenix's uh, birthday. And she was sitting next door. She was doing his, his makeup. She was helping uh, with the design of his uh, hair and makeup. And so you'd have to be like, all right, honey, I'm going to go and get naked with five naked girls. I'll be back. So that was a, that was a bit of a... He was like, can I wear the Hugh Hefner robe? I'm like, well, you can, but it's going to look bad. You got you to gotta be... The idea of this character is so whack that he's got to be wearing the leopard print underwear and, and the afro. There's no point to have a Hugh Hefner robe. And he... Um, we were going back and forth, like, fine, I'll keep half the robe on. I'm like, okay. And then <laughs> during the process, we started shooting, and he throws it off because he understood that it, it worked p- wonderfully. It's great that sometimes creative conflict really, 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 really helps get the thing in a better shape. It's not that it's a huge difference whether he wears it or he doesn't wear it, but I knew that for the character, for me, it's a big difference. And the fact that he wears it for a little bit of the scene and then he doesn't is a nice little touch. It, nothing special, but it just kind of keeps things, I guess, moving along. Oh goodness, what have you done? What have you done this time, Jimmy? Are you still conscious? Yeah. Hello. You're gonna be okay. And this sequence was very difficult to film. Uh, I had the tough t- task of, of playing Henry during the, the brothel sequence. And originally this moment of where the girl takes Henry's hand and puts on her breast was in the script and I would never, I feel very sort of, I'm shy around women and I would have never been like, hey, uh, you grab my hand and put it on your boobie, it'll be great. But what happened was, when the first Jimmy collapsed, in the script, Preppy Jimmy, this guy, appeared right away, which just, as soon as we started shooting, I was like, God, that's not going to make sense. How would he need a little bit of time? And so Vlad Kaptur, who was the on-set editor, was a very, um, very much a family man, a very serious guy, a very sort of, very, very focused. He comes in, I'm like, Vlad, Vlad, got to help me out here. We got to have something. They, they got to do something for, you know, 10 seconds. And Vlad's like, well, it's easy. They should just play around with him, and uh, and then you should take your hand and just put it on the boob. I'm like, well, uh, now that he mentions it, I went along with it. But it was uh, it was a little weird. It was a little weird hearing that from Vlad's mouth. Father of two kids and longtime married man. So thanks, Vlad. I love the, uh, the walk that Cocaine Jimmy does here. There's nuances in between all the different Jimmys, and the more I watch the film, the more I see what Charlotte actually did. Uh, just bits and pieces here and there. That skull mask in the drawer was, um, we did a, a cross promo with um, Payday, the video game, and uh, we designed a mask for Charlotte's character for the game as they, I asked if they can put Jimmy into the game and they very graciously obliged. And I thought, well, we put a payday poster in the film and then we're going to make sure that mask is in there for the few guys who will notice. I thought it's a nice little Easter egg. The barman right here is my friend Sergei Mezensov. He's a very talented comedian. And uh, what I did was a lot of the a lot of the small parts, I just called my friends who, who I wanted to work with. I was like, can you come over and do this thing real quick? And everybody agreed. And... This is one of my favorite shots in the film. The variety where things are happening everywhere, background, foreground, is I love how Shelter sniffs the coke that he pulled out of his underwear and the guy gets killed. I remember 
remember going home and listening to about 300 tracks of uh, old American uh, rock and roll. And I never heard of this band before. They're the Sonics. And they're singing about Strychnine. For those that don't know, Strychnine is a poison. So he's talking about, he's singing about trying poison. And for 1965 song, that's punk as fuck. So I'm very happy that I found that song and I think it fits perfectly. Here's my old friend Bruce Grant, who I met my first uh, job uh, in the film industry. I was sitting outside of the Moss Film Studio, uh, waiting for my pass to go in and start looking for a job. And he was waiting there for uh, for a casting uh, audition. And uh, we just talked, and I always kept him in mind, and I shot him in the music videos, and he was a very natural choice for this brothel guy. And I was like, you don't have to get naked. He's like, that's fine, I love it. And then one of the details is that he's wearing a yellow cleaning glove, which is a reference to Brad Pitt doing the same when he's fucking Marla Singer in uh, Fight Club. I thought it'd be a nice touch, somebody might notice, and that'd be sweet. You'll go far, Henry. Unlike this piece of shit. And that's the end of Cocaine Jimmy. Always makes me sad. I think him, the hippie, and the colonel are my favorite. And Cocaine's the one that I think we didn't stray much from the script because he was just the easiest in my mind and the funnest to write, which is a huge difference to the Hippie Jimmy coming up because the Hippie Jimmy was born on the morning we were shooting this because he was supposed to be a biker, like a tough, goateed biker dude. And the tattoo artist did a really terrible job with the tattoos. They look like painted on pieces of crap. And Shalto's got very concerned. He walks over to me from the trailer, and he's like, well, look at this. I'm like, fuck, we can't do that. What can we do? And Shalto gets thinking, and he comes back to me five minutes later, and he's like, what if we do a hippie, and I'll smoke weed and be very slow and very exciting? And I was like, I love it. Let's go. And I was playing the, the mercenary. It's my second cameo right here, playing the, this little uh, weak, crying mercenary. So Shalto came up with, a, with the whole um, ego, higher self, ego, higher self. It was a lot of fun to shoot this. It's a lot of fun to direct when you're sitting there, you have to just be crying, covered in blood, and you have a great actor performing right in front of you. Ego. Higher self. Ego. Higher self. Higher self, yeah. Okay. Aiken's taking the girl to his base. Yeah. Ah, shit. Let me handle this. Let me handle this. So in the script originally, this was an English scene. And when the girls came down, we started playing the scene and they were playing it seriously. And I was like, mm, it's not doing anything for them. And I kind of clicked. I thought, what if what if we just do something that every married man understands really well? If you have a woman go at you nonstop and you can't really understand her. And I was thinking, we can do something with a subtitle gag that can work. And I did it on the spot, just did some demos, and I realized, well, I've never seen that before, and I'm curious if, if it has been done. I don't think so. And it gets a great reaction, so, again, I'm very proud of how that turned out. Bike chase sequence. We had five days to shoot this, which is not the right number of days of doing this. And that's also my song, uh, a Biting Elbow song called My Woman, that we wrote specifically for this scene. 
It's very hard to write a rock song that's almost like it's almost like a score. And we've always done that. Bad Motherfucker was written after the video was made. So it's um, rather complicated, but it's very fulfilling when you get it, very rewarding, rather. That gag when uh, the Merc is holding on to the Gatling gun as we're, um, as we're dragging him, we were planning to shoot him and he would just fly away. But I remember going up to Alexander Stetsenka, the very talented stunt choreographer, and said, Alex, can we get him to spin with the Gatling gun? It would just be so much more fun. And uh, he said, well, give me five minutes. That's something that my team could do. They could be like, give me five minutes, we'll be back. It's not, no, that wasn't planned, we can't do that. No, we can't. Everybody was so excited to be doing this that, you know, my craziest ideas were not looked upon as just crazy ideas. They were looked upon as crazy ideas that we have to try and figure out. And if they could, they could. If they couldn't, well, they tried. That shot with them with a guy flying out of the car. That took eight tries. The whole sequence was done, by the way, by Zero VFX, who did us a huge favor by... They were in love with this scene, uh, this Boston company, and uh, they really kicked ass and really delivered. The most trouble they had was with, with the body flying out of the Merc van. And what I wanted to say is that back when the shot where Henry throws a grenade into the van and the van blows up, and uh, the way I describe it, it does a kickflip and he flies up and lands on a bike, that was done practically. Uh, there's two edits in there, but there is a guy who's throwing a grenade. There is an explosion that goes goes off, or rather like a controlled fire burst. There is a jump rail that sends the truck flying. There's just a crane that holds Henry up that allows him to fly. And then we cut on the landing, uh, on the whip looking down right before the bike lands, and then that bike practically drives drives under him. It was uh, it had a steady uh, bunch of metal rods that controlled it to make sure it wouldn't go off, and Henry did land. If you look in the top right monitor, you'll see Henry's vision, what he just saw in the bike chase, being uploaded. And that's a hint for the keen-eyed viewer to see the twist as everything is being recorded and broadcast. And here are the other giveaways that you see the chessboard on the right. It's Henry's the pawn, Aegon's the king, and who is the black queen? It's Estelle. So that was um, my little bit of slightly obvious foreshadowing. Always enjoyed this shot. It was a longer shot originally. We just saw the guy with the knife and then uh, onto her, but um, had to cut it. But having uh, love and death in one shot, it was always wonderful. And that's a chipped tooth right there and a broken camera. Alek Padubny, who was the original stunt coordinator, a third of this film, he always got a little bit carried away, mostly in a good way. Gives an idea of a great Russian pastime. This is... That fact about Russia is... Obviously not a fact. I don't think it's 100,000 baseball bats to 50 baseballs. I'd probably say it's probably about 500,000 baseball bats to 50 baseballs. So this scene, this was a record, I think it was like 19 takes, and this was all, all the way through. And um, we finished it, and then he was like, hold on, I got a different idea for the ending. I'm like, well, what is it? And he's like, I'll show you. And he does the masturbating, the baseball bat, and the spitting out the spit from his mouth, uh, emulating an orgasm. And I saw that, I was like, well, that's very impressive that he's getting into the darkness of his character so much that he's gonna go and do things that he would never ever do in any other film. So you gotta let the actors sometimes 
not something if you have the time to get an option from them go get that option from them because you never know if one of them will come up with something absolutely that you could have never done because I would have never been like oh you know he's gonna jack off a bat and uh, he did so uh, thanks Daniela for masturbating a sports piece of equipment You little pussy. I really, really, really love this Devandra Banhart song. When I went, after we shot about two-thirds of the film, there's a six-month pause. We're waiting for the winter to end and we're waiting for Charles to come back from Chappie. I went to India with my editor, Vlad, and our families, and we edited in the first cut in Goa. And I had about 10 CDs with me. And uh, one of them was the Vendor Banhart. That's why there's two songs in this. I couldn't find any better songs. I think this one and the one we see later down in the film are fantastic. And a lot of people who are watching the film from the production side, they're like, oh, please keep that song. Please make sure you get the rights to that song. I'm like, I'm going to try. And uh, again, very lucky that the Avenger let us use it. I can never remember the name of the song because it's the most complicated German name ever. I'm not even going to try. No, I'm not going to try. I'm tempted to, but I'm not. Dude's got a memory blocker. Well, that's about all I can do for you, mate. Time for a reboot. See you in about 15 minutes, hopefully. <laughs> this was a fun scene to shoot. It was cold as hell. Sveta Ustinova was playing one of the dominatrices. Oh, I forgot to mention, in the, in the underground parking lot when the two girls are assaulting uh, Jimmy and Henry verbally, one is Sveta, who you see here, and the other one is Dasha Cherusha, who is the composer in this film, as well as She's My Wife. She was a lot of fun to work with, and um, we originally had a, a big Hollywood composer who was supposed to work in this movie, but then he did a TV show, and he was very tired. He said, I, need, I, don't, I can't work right now. I'll come back a couple of months later. We didn't have that couple of months, or so we thought at that time, so I pitched to everybody, said, let my Dasha do the score, and she only had one film before before that in her resume, and it was very different, very art housey, very ambient. And I said, look, it's gonna be different. She's gonna be very hard. She's never done electronica, but she will kick ass because she's gonna have time and I will make her redo it until it's perfect. And that's what we did. She worked on the score for eight months. Learned a lot of new things along the way. It's very difficult and I don't think she'll ever wants to be a composer again, but I tell her, I'm like, I'm like, honey, no one ever is gonna make life difficult for you as I have been because I know I can get away with making you redo it three times from scratch. And uh, so, Forgive me and thank you. And I'm glad that some of the reviews mentioned the, her music. It, I'm very proud of her. This tank sequence was a reshoot. The original tank sequence was just much, much more boring. It was an open field. He, Henry just run out of the tank and did some stuff. It just was absolutely a waste of a tank. We had one day to shoot all of this, which was a little difficult. But we persevered as always and we managed to get it. It just, the idea of fighting a tank with a katana is just one of those very absurd action sequences that I was like, we have to have it in this film. So let's get us a tank. And uh, we did. And that right there is Kirill Serebrinkov. He's a, a fantastic Russian theater and film director who just wrote to me on Facebook one day while we were shooting. He's like, well, can I come by and have a look? I'm very curious what, what, what you guys are doing. And I was like, sure, but if you come by, you have to be in the film. He's like, that's a deal. And so he comes over and we shoot him and we have another little fun cameo for the Russian audience. 
scene originally was a little longer. There was a much bigger fight. But again, for pacing reasons, we just have to keep going. You don't need to kill 10 people if you can get away with killing four and keeping it all fresh and, and exciting. So this was done again for real. Alek Padubny, who plays Yuri, is actually doing this climb right here. And here we cut, and we're above cloud level as Alek Padubny actually cutting the rope that he was just holding onto in the previous shot. And uh, it was a base jumper who, the original shot was above cloud level, so, and then we kind of morphed the ground into it instead of the clouds. And the horse. So originally it was a much bigger sequence we shot. As uh, Henry gets on the horse, the helicopter actually goes after it. And very Rambo 3-esque, where explosions are happening. He's on a horse and he's trying to fight the helicopter on the horse. And then there was a sequence in a bunker that was supposed to happen, a long horror kind of sequence. And uh, it's just too long and there was no reason to shoot it. And halfway through shooting the horse with the explosions, I just realized, I said, let's go for humor. Let's come back and and get him just fall off the horse. It's the most human moment possible. And um, audiences really respond. It was great that we get to keep the Magnificent Seventh score. It were perfect. We listened to so many different versions because it was pretty expensive. And I listened to a lot of, lot of, lot, a lot of different Western scores. This one just kicked so much ass. I, I, we had to have it and we did. I think the trick is the weaker your strong character is, so to speak, the more everybody relates and the bigger the laughs are. That's a very important part of filmmaking. You gotta have, no matter how tough your guy is, he's gotta be human. The reason one of the best action films of all time, Die Hard, works so well is because John McClane is not indestructible, as he is in the fourth or the fifth installment, which kind of doesn't work for me. The first Die Hard is, is a fantastic template of a guy who's way out of his league taking care of business. He's forced to. In the same way I see it here, obviously Henry's a, you know, a cyborg and is a, he is pretty indestructible, but at the same time, he doesn't really know what he's doing half the time, and that makes him very relatable, or at least I like to think it makes him very relatable, because, you know, we wanted the audience to be Henry. Otherwise, the audience are not feeling like they're Henry, well, we might as well not have made this and wasted all that time, energy, and, and money. Suka! <laughs> Good job, Charlie Bronson. Bravo two zero. This is the first shot we shot with Charlto. I was playing Henry here. And uh, the doormat was not scripted. What happened was, as soon as he put out the ghillie suit on with all these extra elements, and I saw all that stuff falling from the suit, I was like, get me a doormat, this will be great. And um, it was great. The door, we had to go through. The door wouldn't open as smoothly as it would, and I kept apologizing to Charlotte because I didn't know, at that point, it was like first shooting day. I was like, sorry, man, we're we gonna get the door right, we're gonna get the door right. He's like, well, you know, when Matt Damon and I were in Elysium, and, um, there was a door that wouldn't open like a dozen times in a row, so you guys are good. And I was like, oh, excellent, okay, cool. That's cool. So, yeah, I don't know if that's true, but it made us feel a lot better about ourselves. Emotional motivation. Motivation? Try your fucking paycheck, James. My paycheck. 
Yes, okay. This scene right here is was the most complicated thing to film in actually the entire movie, and not because the shots are complicated, they're not, they're pretty easy to direct and organize, but because everything here was shot separately. Aiken and Slick were shot in a separate green screen plate. Jimmy, as he talks to him, was shot six months before that in a separate green screen plate. Everything inside was shot a year after that on a stage, and Slick Dimitri, the Andre who's playing Slick, actually is playing Jimmy in this one. So it was just a very kind of thing where you had to really, really get your, you know, planning correct. And there we have uh, Jimmy's backstory. We're all there to say, have a seat. So this is another, this was another reshoot because one of the first things we shot with Charlotte was the lab sequence. And we had a pretty bad design and we didn't have the characters down as well as they could have. The original Jimmy was a lot more Stephen Hawking-like. He talked very slowly and it was just painful to watch because you felt incredibly sorry for him and the speed of everything slowed down so much that it just really really didn't work and we came back and and uh, we got a great design for for this lab because the previous one was mostly like half outdoor so it was too well lit and for a scene like this i realized it needs to be totally dark and you know i spent a bit of my paycheck reshooting this thing and uh it doesn't matter because, you know, this film is the most important thing I have. I spent three years on it, and um, everything else uh, really doesn't matter. Have bits and a brain. They think for themselves, in theory at least. Shall I have a look at you? That hippie. What is with a ganja? You're not baked, are you? Hope not. All right. I love the screens that Hydraulics did for uh, this scene. It took quite a lot of tries to get it to get it perfect, but um, I really like the design and, and the way the, the skeleton responds to Henry's movements. This whole scene, it took us, I think, three days to shoot, which was, which could have been done much quicker, except all the costume changes were very, very complicated. And you, know, you can't just get into the punk in half an hour. It took it's a two-hour makeup session to go from any of them to the punk, and in an hour to get from the punk to anybody else. So a lot of time is eaten up by that. Hmm. A big concern of mine was making the Jimmy character a person with disabilities, and having him be in a wheelchair. I was, I knew that there was a certain responsibility to making sure that people with disabilities would not be put off by sort of this this lead character. It was, I think responsibility was, was, a, was a good word. I was pretty damn nervous on getting it right and having a sort of a positive image. And I remember we were showing this film in, um, in one of the festivals and I was, we did a, quick sound check five minutes before the, the screening and I went to, to the bathroom. The whole place was locked off and there was um, a guy who was helping his friend go from the wheelchair onto the bathroom as I was I was taking a leak and washing my hands and they were, he was really struggling to help his friend and I remember thinking, God, he's going to watch the film and I hope, I hope to God I did something right here. And uh, as it turns out, I get back to we get to the, the screening and I'm sitting near the back and those two guys are sitting just 
one or two rows away in him. And I was looking at his reaction in the scene. And when Wheelchair Jimmy drives out and they started talking about his backstory, and I'm seeing him, him he's smiling. And now was probably the biggest sigh of relief that I, that I uh, had during the making of this film. So I'm glad that worked out, because that would have felt like shit. Close your eyes. That felt like a confession in a little, in a little bit. Yeah, enjoy. Uh, nice, thoughtful director's commentary where I talk about my worries. It's kind of like a therapist session in a way. I've never been to a therapist, but I would imagine that's what it would be like. I've been shit for being a traitor, you lying grasser. I'm shutting you down, mate. So the Sinatra Jimmy that just fell down, that was the only time we did face replacement in this movie. Charlotte, I think he got sick for the first half of the day and we had to keep shooting. So that was a stun guy falling for him and face replacement, very simple 2D face replacement. I think it worked quite well. And here we have the proto baby. I'm embarrassed to say that there was a breathing mechanism in the baby, but on that particular take, we didn't push the button to make his chest uh, move to make him look like he's breathing. And it was too expensive to fix in CG, and um, I don't think anybody notices, but I do and I hate it. I will never mess up like that again. You're broadcasting out to So in the original lab sequence that we shot, that we had to reshoot, what happened was Jimmy revealed to Henry that Estelle is evil. And that was a big melodramatic moment as Henry argued with him and and it was just incredibly sappy. And then Henry, he understood that that's the truth. He's gonna trust Jimmy. And he went to this balcony, he threw the, the ring down and it was incredibly sappy. And um, the intentions were good, but what happens with, if you reveal the, the final twist with a third of the film still to go, the rest of the film just becomes an action film and the guys are just going to kick some ass. And there was another, there was a big sequence that I wanted to do in the roof where it's Jimmy versus Estelle and they're arguing and Estelle is actually telling us that Jimmy, or that Aiken is actually Jimmy, that Jimmy is controlling Aiken the way he's controlling all these avatars. And we were in a standoff where we had a gun and Jimmy had a gun and they were both arguing against each other trying to convince us who's the bad guy. And of course we listened to Estelle, shot Jimmy, and then it turns out that she was bullshitting us and she's the evil bitch. And that would have been a very interesting thing to do. I'm still saddened by the fact that Jimmy dies where he dies in the film right now. The problem was we couldn't get Estelle and Charlotte in Russia at the same time. So that was another rewrite that had to happen due to just a production complication. And um, as happy I am with what we have, it would have been very interesting of a scene to, to shoot. Because what I kind of miss, because Henry doesn't talk, again, to keep the immersion factor going, a lot of the scenes are not dialogues, they're monologues. Because they're talking to us and we're not really answering anything. And the very few moments in the film where we do have people talk is just, well, I enjoy them quite a bit. So I would have loved to have the ending where they talk together and have an actual dialogue, a dramatic dialogue, instead of a one-way conversation. Also, there's a certain stigma attached to blokes who like... The sniper sequence. I have to point out that this is the first day that we got our new first AD, Zauer, who is this... Um, bearded 
dude from um, Ossetia, and he's just the best first AD in Russia, and he made this film work. Because we were shooting 20 shots a day, he arrived, we started shooting 40. He was this sort of, again, like bearded, really macho dude, had the fantastic sense of humor, everybody loved him, he could make everybody work twice as hard as they usually would work, and at the same time, nobody would ever mind the way, sort of, he, it's, it's a tricky thing to be able to push people to work harder and still be respected, loved, and loved. Respected and loved is a very complicated thing, and Zauer pulled that off, and I'm, again, he's one of those key people that was very important in having him on the project, and so, yeah, thanks, Zauer, if you're listening. Probably not, he's busy, he's got some stuff to do. That's a balcony where Henry originally threw the ring off. So if you look, if you notice, Henry doesn't have the ring on anymore because we shot all of that with the intention that he throws the ring out. And then we came back to reshoot it. I was like, well, we'll CG the ring. And then we never did because no one ever pays attention. But now you will. And uh, that's probably going up in the trivia section of IMDb. And uh, I'm going to dig my own grave and shoot my own foot. And here it is. Chop, chop. Big Sally. Always love that line, home is where the battle is. So this is the scene that we released on the Indiegogo campaign originally in November 2014 to show off what this film is going to be like. And um, what we're, we always wanted to do crowdfunding after Bad Motherfucker came out to, to, to help with the funding of this movie. But I was super hesitant to ask for money before I knew that this film could work. So I told everybody, I said, look, we'll let me make the film. Let me get the first cut. And if it works and I like it, then I can ask for money. Otherwise, I'm not doing that. Because there's been too many campaigns where I've contributed and people just returned with shit or didn't return anything at all. It's a huge responsibility when you're going crowdfunding for so much money as we were. It's $250,000. That's the top 1% of all crowdfunding campaigns. It's, it's not that much in terms of filmmaking money, but it's a lot for the crowdfunding world. So... I hugely appreciate all the support we got, not just from the from the contributors themselves, there was, I think, about 2,000 of them, but from the press and from the community in general who shared the video, who commented in the video. You know, it was, a, it was a very big deal. It was a very big deal, and we really appreciate it lots. It's horrifying to go out there and be like, well, we need some money to finish the movie, and I was thinking, what if it doesn't work? If it doesn't work, then if people don't pay the money, then no one gives a shit about this, and maybe we shouldn't be doing this, and there's always sort of, self-doubt that pops up when you're putting yourself out there like that. It's way less scary to show your film for the first time because you know you've made it, you're proud of it, it's just one thing. But when you're going out and you're asking for money, it's a very specific thing and you only get to do it once and I would never do it again because if you ask for money and, and you make a piece of shit, well then I would never give you anything again. Why would I? It's the same kind of attitude I had that, you know, for a long time now I was, I was looking forward to making my first feature film and I knew that I promised myself that if I made something bad, I would never ever do try to make a film again because there's too many directors out there who make shit and they keep making shit after shit after shit and they're just polluting the air with the garbage and I didn't want to be that guy. There's um, plenty of other jobs that I think I could have been pretty damn good at. I mean, it broken my heart, but I would have never wanted to and I'm sure, fair enough, someone will watch this and say, well, you did make a piece of shit, and I'll be like, no, sir, you are wrong. I think it's a lovely piece of entertainment. But um, I don't know if I would have stuck to that promise to myself, but that was kind of my keep cinema pure um, attitude. Get me 
love this piece of music the one that's playing right now. Always enjoyed it. It felt very, what's the right word? Uh, I'm not gonna try to go for the genre on that one, but uh, Dasha wrote that, and that was one of the first things she nailed. Jolly good. Jolly good indeed. Pull your weight. Help me with the cripple. The word cripple was, so we talked with Charlotte, like, do we call him cripple? And I was like, well, he's a World War II colonel. In that time, people would be calling people cripple, and uh, the PC factor was very different, so I think it makes sense for the character. The colonel was an interesting way how we came up with the colonel. Before I talk to you guys about that, I wanted to tell you that this moment right here, I wanted to kind of borrow from myself from Bad Motherfucker when we looked down, and the same actor, Alec Padubny, is there smoking a cigarette, and a bunch of guys come out, and this was kind of a, a copy of that. Practical Explosion, obviously Debris wasn't real, and I love this song. It's an 80s synth-pop band, uh, Russian or Soviet Union band, Alliance. Alliance. I always enjoyed this song. We played with them in a couple of festivals a long, long time ago, and uh, they were really great guys, and I was, the song just really works for me, and I thought it would be great to introduce it to the Western audience, and um, hopefully they'll, you know, do some good for them. I, they're still around, they're still playing, and uh, I remember, I know that this song was pretty, damaged thing for the Western mind because as we were mixing, you know, we mix this part and then we go to lunch and the, and the, the sound mixing team, one or two guys would be like singing it, which is um, pretty damn cool. Tell her. Now this is actually, I talk about never green screening, putting any hands in. That's the one time I had to cheat because we had one shot and the C4 would have probably gone, uh, the explosion would have gone off at the wrong time and it would have been a fucked up take, so we had to um, green screen that hand. I admit it, okay? So I lied before, but I'm saying the truth now. So the colonel, quickly, about the colonel. So the colonel, as I wrote him, he was a World War II guy and I had pretty much very basic lines for for the intentions, sort of like placeholder lines. And we talked about it with Charlotte. Charlotte uh, found a reference of a General Montgomery, the British general, and there was a speech of his that's available on YouTube, and we listened to it, and we really loved it. And so Charlotte then got a list, printed out a bunch of World War II military slang, British military slang, and uh, we would go through the lines, go through a script, and he and I'd be like, all right, grenades. And Charlotte would be like, grenades, 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 we're cold, eggs, drop that in. Excellent, eggs. And so, like, landing gear for for the feet as they go in the elevator. So all these sort of slang terms, that was a great collaboration with Charlotte that I was uh, I was sleeping four or five hours a night when I was shooting this. It'd be pretty pretty hectic, as one would expect. And it was fantastic that Charlotte could do some of that and would do some of that, and I didn't have to ask him for it. He cared about this character, he cared about the movie so much that it was, uh, you know, he took the initiative. I mean, I got these things, what do you guys think? And, you know, we, we kind of... Uh, kind of crank them out together. It's a big deal to have an actor who cares so much and doesn't just come in and, you know, read his lines, which is great sometimes, but in a project like this, you have to collaborate. And that's, I think, as a director slash producer, that's the most important thing you can do. You get the best people you can interest or afford, and you have to hear them out. You don't have to do what they're saying, but you have to hear them out because collectively, all these people are going to be smarter than you. 
same as, you know, no matter how smart you think you are, no matter how good you think you are, that theater audience of, you know, 350 or 400 people, they're going to have seen more films than you have. They're going to have read more books than you have. You know, definitely listen to more music than you have. So it, it makes a lot of sense to draw, if you have the option to hear people out there are talented, you have to use them. You need all the help you can get. I mean, you can be a tyrant, you can be a uh, despotic director, that works as well, but at the same time, it's you'd be fooled not to at least hear out and uh, possibly get options. And uh, Shelter definitely did give me a lot of options, and um, it was a fantastic working experience with him. It really is. If you uncork it, I won't be able to. The, 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 the thingamajig in your pocket, quickly. So all these inserts right here, all these uh, flashbacks, I shot that in California with a guy called Chris Johnson. I called him, uh, he was, he's a friend of Steve uh, Murkovich, the editor, and I said, can we get, I just need, I just need to go and I'll just shoot some random stuff. And I kind of had a basic visual idea. And we just went and had a you know, six or seven hour drive around and we shot a bunch of stuff and that's where we got that. And I'm very happy with how that turned out again. There goes that phrase, it's the 25th time, God damn it. And about that toy robot, um, that toy robot is actually my childhood toy from when I was about four or five. When I was looking for something for Henry for his memories, I thought, well, I should use that because in my mind, I am Henry. And um, a lot of how I see the world is obviously in this film. And I was like, I thought it'd be a nice little touch to use my toy robot in the movie. And uh, we were shooting the scene when the kids have to throw it. And we had one copy made, a 3D printed copy. And I'm showing to uh, Jack how you're supposed to throw it. And I drop it. <laughs> I'm a little clumsy. I drop it. So the only copy that we could have thrown crashes on the floor when we weren't rolling and the look on the crew's face is like you gotta be shitting me and they're like alright let's take the real one throw the real one I'm like I'm not throwing my real toy robot I mean I get it the film's very important but this is my childhood toy I'm not doing that we're gonna CG it so yeah I had to pay for that for that robot out of my pocket as well because uh, for the CG robot because uh, that was like a five or six grand shot but I thought well my childhood toy robot is worth more than that I mean, for a guy who, you know, who likes violence and films and makes the film that I do and the entertainment that I do, I'm a very sentimental guy, it turns out, sometimes. This shot was a pain in the ass. We, I wanted to do the whole thing practically. It was shot in a Phantom at first. A Phantom is a high-speed camera, like 2,500 frames per second. And out of the six explosions, only two went off. And so stun guys got confused and lost because that's not how... You're supposed to have everything correct for them because it gets really complicated. And they all fell incorrectly. And we, it was a six-hour reset. And this is one time where I shouldn't have listened to everybody who said, oh, we'll fix it in post. I'm like, no, don't fucking try to fix it in post. If you can do it live, do it live. Yeah, I mean, the guys, I think it was Giant Propeller, an L.A.-based CG vendor that took care of that shot for us, and I think they did a very good job. But compared to what I had in my mind as I was shooting it, it's just scratching the surface. I wanted to have a really slow sort of uh, firework celebration of Jimmy's death, and um, that didn't quite happen. I mean, it's good for pacing reasons. There's always an upside, but, you know. I love you, Edward. I love you, Thomas. You're recognized, ladies. No? That's odd. An important thing is the song. I love the Peter Wolf Cry a song, Hard as Nails. And 
it was actually Dasha's idea to use it because it was it's a song that I found a long time ago. Always enjoyed. I had I think it had like you know, ten thousand views on YouTube, and I was trying to find a song. I was going through all my favorite songs, and Dasha, remember that song with the video that you always enjoyed when the the guys are in the house and they're they're painting the 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 baby room and something's a little creepy and it's and I was like and I got it. And I remember the song, so I found the song on YouTube and um, I cut it in. It worked wonderfully, and um, hopefully Peter Wolf Cryer will get some push from this uh, movie. Yeah. Well, we, Sony's releasing the, the soundtrack, which is great. And I knew that if the distributor didn't want to do a soundtrack, what I would have done, I would have just taken all the songs, did my own cover, because, man, I love soundtracks. Here's another The Vendor Banhart song as we rip into the chest of this guy. This guy was a little mean, I have to say. We were shooting, he was saying we were all gonna go to hell for this. And at first we thought he was joking, and, but as I was shooting this, was, I was doing Henry here, and I was digging his chest to pull out that thing, and he was like, you're gonna go to hell for this. And I was like, uh, uh, looking around the crew, and the crew was like, uh, that's a little weird. Uh, so we're not gonna go to hell, you know why? Because hell does not exist. See ya. And here come the bad guys. We did um, uh, a Texan company, Mighty Coconut, did the background for this for this sequence. And originally for Toronto, we, it was there was no time and we didn't have much money. And they did very basic kind of backgrounds. Did a lot of rotoscoping work because we shot this in a soundstage, right? Where it was it's not a green screen. It was all black cloth, and every frame here had to be done by hand rotoscoping by hand which took a lot of artists a lot of time to get correctly so the toronto version we had a very basic black background and um i remember reading some of the reviews saying the cgi was iffy and i was like my god it won't be if it's a fucking temp version but you know that's what you get but um when stx bought the movie i went to them with two, with six excel sheets worth of thoughts and costs of what I think could be made better. And to their credit, they could have just said, no, movie's good, Toronto went well, you got good reviews, thank you, that's good, now we'll see you at the premiere. They actually gave me five-sixths of what I asked for and what I thought was made better. And um, and I really, really appreciate that. So they're probably not listening, but Adam Warren, um, Sophie and Kathy, thank you very much. It's a big deal. So this whole sequence was the most complicated thing in terms of psychologically it took us three weeks to shoot it was uh, the soundstage had very bad air conditioning we had 50 extras 50 stun guys 70 liters of blood per day uh, lots of fire lots of smoke it was cold outside we couldn't really air it out and it was just I know that every lunchtime we'd eat for 15 minutes and then we'd sleep for 30 minutes and the whole crew would just be just completely knocked out just because it's something about being in this light with all this violence around you that kind of gets to you a little bit. It's, uh, Hill does not exist, but if it did, it would be a sort of a somewhat angrier version of this. It was a lot of fun to design this whole action sequence because we just knew that we had a soundstage that size, so we rooftop. It was just a, a kid in the candy shop situation where we just kind of said, let's do this, let's do that. And I was pitching crazy ideas and it was like, we want to have a house that he falls off from and there's a tower that falls down and, and the production designer, Rita, would be drawing all these things and we just, it's kind of like, um, 
you're designing your own video game map. That's how I felt about this uh, last section right here. And the guard hut. I love that kettle with the water. Always does something for me. So the guard hut is one of the obvious video game references. I was a huge fan of Left 4 Dead and the No Mercy campaign. And the finale was a rooftop where you're waiting for a helicopter, fighting off those waves after waves of zombies. And this guard hut, I hope, is somewhat reminiscent because I showed it to my production designer and said, this is kind of what we're going for. So I hope the other Left 4 Dead fans will feel the same. That would be nice. This guy right here, this guy's huge. This guy's like six foot five, if I'm not mistaken. Those Django-sized quibs. the Queen's song and I'm doing my best not to sing along with it. I always loved the song since I was about seven. My favorite Queen song of all time. And originally here we had a, a much bigger orchestra situation, but uh, Dasha and I were talking about discussing our feelings on the music here and we both came to the conclusion that we needed to give the audience a break. We needed something more fun. And as soon as I realized fun, I was like, 80s rock song. And as soon as that 80s rock song, I was like, don't stop me now. I was super excited. And then I realized that Edgar Wright used it in uh, Shaun of the Dead back in 2004 or 5. And I was like, well, well, it's a great song, and it's a different context, but I love Edgar Wright, and I love Shaun of the Dead. Uh, I don't know, it's, is it copycatting too much? Is it, am I trying? Uh, so it was a lot of back and forth. I listened to another three or 400 songs, same as for the Strict 9 Sonic song for the brothel. I listened to a lot of stuff and I was like, okay, you know what? My conscience is clear. I love that song. I always loved it and I'm gonna put it in. And if someone says that I borrowed from Edgar Wright, I'll be like, if you gotta borrow, you gotta borrow from the greats. So, yeah. I think it's one of the nicest shots in terms of color with the blue and the moon and the fire and Aiken's red. It was a much longer sequence as well originally, and we actually killed Aiken here. He originally, when he brings us up, he smashes us down and he drags us to the edge of the building and we grabbed an AK and shot him in the back. And we talked to him with Estelle and then he would reappear. And it just, again, for pacing reasons, while I was still shooting, we, I looked at it and I was like, you know what, we're going to speed it up. We cannot spend so much time at this point in the film. As much as I did enjoy having Aiken's monologue as he dragged us, it was a wonderful shot. The most important thing is you cannot be precious. As a filmmaker, you cannot be precious because, oh, that shot took us a while to do. It was complicated. And I put my soul and I bled for it and I sweat and I had tears. It doesn't fucking matter. It doesn't matter in the slightest. The only person that matters is, is to you and maybe some of your crew. The audience doesn't give a shit. And at the end of the day, as much as I'm making this film for a younger version of me, I am making this film for people to enjoy as much as they can. So, yeah, as they say, uh, you know, don't be precious, kill your babies. When Henry pulled me into the escape pod, 
trying to get me out of the lab no matter what. Who would have thought that pussy is a hell of a motivator? So, coming back to the pussy question, the theme of the film is motivation, and the line that Aiken just said, that who would have thought that pussy is a hell of a motivator, I think that is probably the key to this entire film, because it's pretty obvious that a lot of what happens in the world happens, you know, due to sex, or a desire for sex, and um, it's not, you know, the only thing that drives people, obviously, but I remember reading an interview with a British actor, I think it was... I can't remember who it was in Empire Magazine back in the early 90s, and uh, he would talk about sex as a dragging force of the universe, and I was like, that kind of makes sense. And I was a little kid, and I wasn't quite sure what he meant, but I was like, oh, you know, I maybe. And it kind of stuck with me, and um, it's a love story, right, that it's Henry that's going after his sweetheart trying to save her from this maniacal piece-of-shit human being. But the reason that's happening is because, obviously, that's the way you get someone to do something for you. It's the promise of love, the promise of happiness, the promise of sex. And just as we, the audience, are fooled into thinking that she is the one, Henry's a blank slate when we begin. And the same with us as the audience. We don't know anything. We don't know his backstory. We don't know where he's going. We don't know if Stella's really his wife, our wife, actually. So I think for an action film, I shot entirely from, from this POV, I think the theme is there. I would have loved to expand upon it, but um, I don't think it was really... I could have done much better under the circumstances, especially considering the original ending had to be rewritten due to not being able to get Haley and Charles Owen in Moscow at the same time. Yes, the hand rip. That is the only shot in the film that makes me uncomfortable. Super proud of that. <laughs> but it is pretty damn rough. Because everybody, and you know the old thing where, uh, you know, you show someone getting shot, and it's okay, but you show someone getting a paper cut, everybody squirms because we know what a paper cut feels like. Well, I can kind of imagine what getting your hand ripped like that would feel. And God, that, that just feels horrible. the rule of threes I remember reading Robert Rodriguez's book Rebel Without a Crew when I was when I was a kid and and um, he talks about how the bad guy uses the henchman's beard to strike a match he does it once he does it twice and then he dies and the henchman uses the villain's beard to strike a match and I think subconsciously I did the same thing here in the beginning we have our eyes out in the pool uh, in the aquarium so Estelle puts her eyes back in then Aiken knocks them out with a baseball bat Shalto puts them back in, and then we use our optical nerve to decapitate. It's not even decapitation. I don't know what the word is. So you cut above the mouth. Well, uh, rip the top of his head off using your optical nerve, which I thought was absolutely hilarious. I've never seen that, and it's pretty damn crazy. And um, I love the reactions he gets at the screenings we've had. 
I think is a pretty damn great final uh, death of a villain. Which actually, the final is probably right here, but... Um, and I think it was Haley that suggested we put easy, because we used to type out E-A-S-Y, and she's like, no, just put easy, because I'm not an American. I didn't know that you could do that, and we could, and um, I'm pretty happy that we did. you enjoyed uh, this movie. I hope you enjoyed listening to me blabber on about stuff. There's William Ye. I wanted to point out William Ye did a lot of fantastic editing work. Uh, he was the last guy to come in and he really made the film much, much better than what we had. It was a, an hour 50 cut and I think William brought it down to 130 with me and uh, it was, we, didn't, we only lost one single scene but it was just this punk rock DIY cutting right through everything, which was very, very important. Yeah. Enjoy that photograph and 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 Tim Roth. And I. I want to say something else that was smart, but I don't have an idea what to say. So I'm going to listen to uh, my song right here. It's uh, the closing song for the movie, uh, For the Kill. I, we wrote it specifically for the end, uh, for the end titles here. Because I thought, well, you know what? Bad Motherfucker came out. We had the option to, you know, play it all over the world. We had invitations to play huge festivals. We could have signed the record label. But we didn't because I decided to do this film. And I remember we actually got a, an offer from the Pixies to go open for them and Madison Square and, and, and in LA and my bassist Ilya, also called Ilya, he was, we gotta go, it's amazing, we gotta go, Pigs my favorite band, let's go, fucking go, let's fucking go, and I'm like, guys, I'm sorry, I, I can't, I'm gonna, I have to do the film, I, and I'll do it quickly, it'll take me a year and a half, max, how little did I know, uh, three years later, you know, here we are, it's actually, yeah, Batman Fart came out on March 18th, 2013, I think today is uh, March 19th, if I'm not mistaken, 2016, so it's been three years, the film's coming out in a week, or three weeks, I have no idea how well it will do. I will not be surprised if it does anything. It's an exciting time, um, excitingly nervous time. For three years I've been doing this, I've been saying, you know, time will tell. They're like, oh, it's a great idea. I'll do gangbusters. I'm like, time will tell. They're like, well, it's, a, it's always been time will tell. And, you know, we get closer and closer and, you know, we get better, better, better uh, situations for the movie. But um, it's still in this particular moment. I have no idea. I just hope that, you know, enough people see it and uh, enjoy it. And um, as much as... As much as we uh, enjoyed making it, it really was a blast. It was very difficult, but we all had a freaking blast. One and a half drinks making my mind think there's a return. But I'm loving it out here, overseeing their dreams burn. My blood, it shakes, and through my veins and travels to my head, they said. You'll die soon enough anyway, shut up, I can't. I never could How could I start now? Honey, I'm down Not that I need ya Look at me now You've made a believer Turn it up, turn it up Turn it up some more 
If you're hearing this, there's one more thing I need you to do. There's a little uh, pitch for the sequel right there with uh, Jimmy's um, answering message. That wasn't in the script, but um, I kind of felt that it'd be nice, because one of the ideas was at the end when we shut the door and we kill Estelle, we turn in the, 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 heli, the heli pilot's uh, door, uh, cockpit door opens, and there's Jimmy saying, you're all right, mate, which would have been great, except I thought it would have devalued his death and his character in the movie. But uh, I thought, well, you never know. Maybe, you know, people will like this enough. And uh, I never thought about doing a sequel to this. But while, while I was finishing post, I kind of, all these ideas came to me of how I could possibly, what I would do if I had to do it. I wasn't doing it on purpose. I, at the time of shooting, I was like, I would never want to shoot POV again. And now <laughs> I feel like I'm incredibly open to doing it again, just because we learned so much and we had, you know, even with all the complications, it was a ton of fun. It was a 120-day shoot. Um, you know, most of us who worked in this movie never never, um, never worked in, in film before. And um, it's kind of, I always think of the story about GoldenEye and Nintendo 64, the game. I uh, don't know how true this is, but I remember there was a team of seven, only seven people making that entire game. And the reason that worked and they made a masterpiece was because they, it was their first game or one of their one of their first games and they had no idea that you couldn't do a genius masterpiece game with seven people for the budget that they had. So I kind of think we had something in common um, with the Golden. I know it's easy to say we got something in common with the genius, uh, with the genius game. But um, in terms of the approach, I think that really helped. And here we have the Slackers song. Um, always liked the Slackers. Well, I don't like that. I love the Slackers. And I think the key of picking the right song, apart from, you know, setting the right mood for the film, the right finale, the last sort of period you're putting down in this in this story, was I kind of felt that I wanted a song that if someone's going to stick around for a little bit before they leave, they better be listening to something, you know, something uplifting. I want to leave the theater to a ska song. I think that's fantastic. So if you look at the special thanks, there's a lot of people here that um, you recognize, and all these people, uh, like Darren Aronofsky, Samuel Jackson, who tweeted about the Bad Motherfucker video that kind of got me noticed uh, enough to, to do this thing. Um, it was fun writing to all these guys and saying, can I put a special thanks? You've been, you know, you did a small but profound contribution. Can I do that? And everybody was like, yeah. Darren Aronofsky was yes, and Jared Leto was like yes, and Samuel Jackson, it was, it was very nice of them. And also, thank you very much for listening and watching. I hope you enjoyed the movie. And uh, I hope to make the more stuff for you to enjoy and I'll talk about again. Have a good day. Bye.